Well, good morning to you all. I guess I could say it again. Merry Christmas. It is uh, that time yet again. A little bit uh, different this year for me. Um, I had Cohen last year, but um, now that he's walking around and he's uh, fascinated by lights and the decorations, it's uh, brought a whole new joy to Christmas uh, for me. Um, for the holidays, and and to be honest, I look forward to the holidays, I do, but I I somewhat dread them as well. Um, Christmas this last few years seems to have uh, come and gone so quickly, and um, I myself, and I think many of us, have grown a little numb to Christmas. Uh, It can be somewhat uh, monotonous to us. You know, with all the decorating and traditions, shopping and traffic. Oh, the traffic. Getting off 99 is insane over by the malls where I live. And uh, let me tell you something. God has not blessed many people with discernment when it comes to driving. Your patience really get tried during the holidays uh, when it comes to driving. But uh, anyways, having a kid and, and uh, has made things kind of new to me again, so I'm excited for that. Well, I'm honored to be up here this morning, honored to be bringing you this year's Christmas message. When Phil asked who would uh, like to be, who would like to volunteer um, to speak today, I boldly said, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, you know, I was really humbled that Phil would allow me the privilege of being up here and, and uh, giving this message. <laughs> And I started to prepare for this message. And to be honest, I thought it would be somewhat easy, seeing as, seeing as how the subject is pretty much picked out for you already. Uh, and there's a lot of information on the subject. And then it dawned on me that I was going to be speaking on something that is spoken on at least once a year. I'm going to be speaking a message that uh, even someone who doesn't go to church has heard a few sermons on on a text that people are very familiar with. Um, Then I realized why Phil gave me the opportunity to speak up here. It's hard. This is a really hard uh, message. I didn't know what to speak on. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what text to use. Um, And I truly believe that this subject is somewhat of a daunting for many pastors because of that fact alone, of how often it's spoken on and how familiar the subject is. Uh, And... I'll let you on a little secret, for me anyways. Uh, there's this desire when we get up here to kind of put a new spin on it, to spice it up, to try to bring back the, uh, the original joy of hearing the Christmas story again. Um, you know, there's that temptation to, to kind of just shed some kind of new light on it, put a new twist to it. Um, <clears throat> But what can I say and what can we say that has not already been said many times before? So, with all that said, um, our text for this morning, likewise, is a very familiar one. Uh, I believe last time I spoke up here, I spoke for an hour and five minutes on one verse. I'm going to try to get through 20 this morning. Um, But I will not be exhausting the text. Um, 
But today I would like to speak to you all about a birth. A birth that was unlike any other birth that has taken place before. A birth that has changed humankind forever. A birth that has affected each and every individual from our very character and actions to our very thoughts. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> I'll give you a second to get there. I drink a lot of water, by the way. I, Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter, um, but primarily let me focus in in, uh, verse 4. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said to the, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and in dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. And you, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, clothed and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. To work the ground from which he was taken, he drove out the man, and, he, and at the east of the garden he placed a cherubim, and with a flaming sword, turning every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we come to you. We thank you for this morning, God. We thank you for this 
opportunity of your word. And it is my prayer, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would reveal yourself through your word. I pray that, God, you would prepare the minds and hearts of all those here today. Lord, that you would speak to each and every one of us. I pray for myself, God, that you would use me as an instrument, place your words on my lips that they may be spoken. And Lord, may it be your word that is faithfully and purely taught and spoken this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. Well, Lord, we, uh, we thank you, God, and I thank you for the undeserved privilege of being up here proclaiming your truth. Lord, uh, may I be humbled, may we be edified, and may Christ be exalted. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. <clears throat> well, um, I was having a civil debate with a, a perfect stranger on the theological website of Facebook. And thanks to Phil, I think it was one of his posts that I was end up getting like a whirlwind. I just got caught into it, and there I went um, talking with a gentleman who was a self-proclaimed atheist. <clears throat> And uh, throughout, um, throughout the argument, he kept bringing up the age-old argument that he couldn't believe in a good God with all uh, evil and, and badness in the world. And uh, throughout my reasonings with him, I kept referring him to this text. Um, now, it was my intention of speaking on this text beforehand, uh, but that, that little discussion really got me prepared and familiar with this text. So I guess it was a good thing. Um, and I will be referring to that conversation a, a few times. So praise God for that conversation. But, um, but I was referring a lot to this text because this, this text is where things change for the worse for hu- in human history. This is where it all goes wrong. This is where we can find the answer to all of life's problems hardships, pains, sufferings, and despair. It all points back to this. Now, there's much that this world takes lightly. But one of the greatest of these, as well as most detrimental, is sin. Sin has infiltrated its way into our lives, our desires, our thoughts, and ultimately our actions. Sin has corrupted our hearts and the very core of who we are. Jeremiah 79 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus comments in Mark chapter 7, um, explaining to his disciples that acts such as sexual sins, theft, and murder spring from a heart bent on evil. In verse 23 of that chapter, he says, All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. There is none of us that is not affected by sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is unavoidable, much as how our parents relay to us or give to us their physical traits and attributes, so they give to us their spiritual traits. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. By the way, that is why Christ needed to be born a virgin. 
If there is one thing the church needs to get right in this day and age, it is the seriousness of sin. And sadly, many churches do not. <clears throat> As I stated before, this uh, text that we'll be in is very familiar and is saturated with information and doctrine. I will not and cannot completely exhaust this text, otherwise, we would be here till Christmas. And I don't want to do that to you. Um, my objective is to focus on sin and its effects as seen here in this text. So let us begin in, in verse 4. Verse 4 and 5, I will cover. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we all know this story. We've heard it before. Anybody growing up in the church has heard it a million times in, in Sunday school. And because of that, there's a monotonous to this story. But make no mistake, this was an actual time in history. Real people, real consequences. The serpent, which is Satan, tempts the woman. The temptation to sin begins with the denial of God's spoken word. In chapter 2, verse 17, God prohibits Adam from eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, warning that the day he eats from it, he shall surely die. Now, I don't believe anything was necessarily evil about the tree itself, other than it being forbidden. Now, question, why was the tree in the garden? Another uh, regularly asked question by skeptics. If sin is, in fact, so detrimental, why would God allow there to be a tree that would bring forth sin? And the answer to that is simply because God gives us free will. If God eliminates the opportunity for sin, then he eliminates any choice we have of free will. We do this today in our society. We attempt to do it in our society today. It's called prison. We eliminate the opportunity of crimes being committed. I often say that to skeptics and atheists who say, you know, well, why did God allow the opportunity? And I, I tell them the same thing. I said, listen, I love my son so very much. And if I wanted to, I could keep my son from all evil of this world. And I could keep him from committing evil to others. I could lock him in his room, never to let him out. Therefore, keeping him from evil. That's love, right? God gives us free will. Sin is possible because free will is available. Now, once the denial of God's word has been placed, then the temptation to defy it can now be offered. The temptation is laced with another lie. The lie that God is holding something back. You think you're free? God has put a limitation on you. How free are you truly, Eve? There is more out there that is being kept from you. More that you deserve. You deserve more. The best. And God is keeping this from you. Sounds like a motivational speech that the world gives today. 
Satan tempts with the very sin that he was guilty of. Isaiah 14, 13 through 14 records, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is exactly what sin is and why we need to take it so serious. You see, as I understand in this chapter, we call this chapter the fall. We've labeled it the fall, and I understand why. But it seems to denote uh, an unintentional action, kind of an accident, um, not planned. And that's how the world treats sin. But the fact of the matter is, it is blatant defiance against God. Sin is the action taken by one to usurp God from his throne. The Greek translation of sin is to miss the mark, to come up short, and that's exactly where sin leaves us. But the intention of sin is this uh, uh, usurping desire, this uprising. I like R.C. Sproul's definition of sin. He calls it cosmic treason, a betrayal. One might say that when they sin that there is not this desire in them. Hey, when I sin, I don't have a desire to usurp God from his throne. It's not, you know, I'm not sitting there thinking that. Sometimes it just happens. I don't even think about it. But the sad fact is that we've gotten so good at sin, so numb to sin, that we can do it without even thinking about it. Each sin is a blatant statement that my way, O Lord, is greater than your way. That I choose to serve myself above you. To take you off the throne of my life and set up myself in, its, in your place. <clears throat> and throughout history, man has fashioned for himself gods that have catered to his needs and desires. Nowadays, man has eliminated the stone, wood, and gold material used for idolatry and has set up ourselves in its place in our own minds, making God in our own image. Now that the temptation has been set to know good and evil, deciding for yourself what is good and evil, going back to the discussion I had with that atheist gentleman, um, <clears throat> I don't know if I bored him or whatnot, he just stopped you just stop commenting. It's usually how it ends. Um, but I would like to read for you the last words of our conversation that he said. I got the last word in. Um, <laughs> not, not that that's important. But anyways, he said, and I quote, The God described in the Bible is just not feasible to me. However, I choose to be good. And do good things, because just the right way to live. End quote. I often hear this speaking with non-believers. That just because I'm not a Christian, just because I don't follow your Bible, doesn't mean I'm a bad person. I still have chosen to live my life doing good things, to live a good life. And my question back to them is always the same. By whom standards? Do you live this good life? And then the inevitable result 
is, and the response is always the same, their own standard. They have been sold on the same temptation and lie that was given to Eve. You decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. This is the inevitable result when you abandon God and his word. If you read the book of Judges, you will read of Israel's blatant sin, disobedience, and desertion of God. And at the end of the book, you read these tragic words, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. James 1, 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The actual act of sin is not the first instance in which we go wrong. Rather, sin begins when we desire that which is forbidden. The desire then gives birth to the act of sin, which then brings forth the consequence of death. The seed of desire has been planted in Eve's heart, and she keeps watering it and watering it with desire, justifying it to herself. This is where we get it from. We're pretty good at this, self-taught. Listen to what she thinks to herself. It is good for food like the other trees. It was the delights of the eyes like the other trees and looked as harmless too. It had the ability to make her like God and why should she not desire to be like her maker? If God was good and holy, should she not strive to be good and holy as well? Why shouldn't she desire to be like her maker? Why was something unfairly being kept from her? So she took of his fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Oh, men, we're almost in the clear. Ladies, this is why us men have a hard time listening. Because the first time we did, you see what happened? I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) the prohibition was given directly to man to Adam and he relents his responsibility for the prohibition was given to him before Eve was even created now she obviously knew the consequences she stated it before I believe verse 2 and knew better, but nevertheless, Adam had the responsibility to guard and protect that which was entrusted unto him. Not just the garden, but Eve herself. (laughs) Result number one of their disobedience, it is immediate. Their eyes were open, and they knew they were naked. 
Their first result of sin is a loss of childlike innocence, which is replaced by something else that Adam and Eve have never felt before. Shame. For the first time, they feel exposed to one another, and they feel the need to hide and cover oneself. No longer is the trust there between the two. Of all creations on this earth, we are the only ones that desire this covering, even when we're alone. The birth of sin brings about this great shame. And with it, as we see, man's feeble attempts to cover that shame. So natural it is for us to try to cover up our shame, try try to cover up the evidence, try to cover up the sin. You think of David and Bathsheba. After David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he tries everything he can to cover up his shame and guilt and sin, which results with more sin. By the end, he finds himself completely exposed before God. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. With this shame comes fear. Which brings me to uh, the next verse and our second result. Verse 8 and 9. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Before the birth of sin, man walked with God. Man walked with God without fear and perfect fellowship. Now a new nature has taken over. No longer does man naturally seek God, nor does he instinctually have a desire to. Romans 3, 10 and 11, quoting from Psalm 14, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Universal negative. No one. Jesus comments in commenting on man's ability when it comes to seeking in John 64 says, No man, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. Sin has given man a new nature that does not seek God, but runs from him. This is why seeker-sensitive churches are kind of an oxymoron, because there are none that seek. Man loves darkness that fills his life because it is all he has come to know. They now have this knowledge of evil, not by omnipotence as God does. God knows all things. But they know it by experience, which God does not know. God does not know evil by experience. Man does. This knowledge has entered their hearts and minds and tainted everything and a part of who they are. Man's works from here on out shall be tainted by sin. Here we see innocence replaced by guilt, fellowship replaced with fear. This perfect communion is now broken that man now hides and runs from God. In verse 9, we get a glimpse of a characteristic of God 
that is prevalent throughout Scripture. God, who is in the know of what has just transpired, does not show up in a, a blazing, fiery judgment. The covenant God gently pursues sinful man in a, in a manner that, to me, just seems so fatherly. Verse 10 and 11, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat? Adam reveals himself as well as this fear and shame which can only be the conclusion of one thing. He has defied his creator, yet he does not confess it. Much like a father that is fully aware of the situation, God alludes to Adam's sin indirectly. Who told you that you were naked? We've all seen this with children and those of us who our parents have done this with our children, when you know of something bad they've done and you come to them and play dumb, getting, trying to get them to admit. You know who I see this most with is uh, when you watch cops. You watch cops, man. Guy runs away, finally gets tackled by a cop. He goes, I didn't do anything. I'm innocent, man. I didn't do anything. Why are you running? I was afraid. Why are you afraid? You didn't do anything. What's the problem? Why are you running? Every time I watch cops, it's always that. <laughs> Guy runs and then finally gets caught. Pleads his innocence. Uh, God continues in his fatherly manner, asking the question to which he already knows the answer to, probing Adam to do the only thing he can do, confess his sin. Verse 12 and 13, The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? Then the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is where passing the buck originated. Right here. Instead of confessing his guilt before the holy judge, Adam justifies himself by passing his guilt and sin on to his wife. It's every man for himself now, literally. And not only does he do that, he says, The woman that you gave me, Adam even dares to blame God himself for the transgression. Lord, you, you created her. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. <clears throat> oh, man. How typical this is of sinful men. Uh, going back to that conversation I had with that atheist gentleman, um, and pretty much everyone that clings to the argument of too much evil in the world to believe in a good God, we are the ones that commit sin. And when that sin brings about the evil consequence that it naturally does, we blame God. Whenever tragedy strikes, we point the finger at God and dare to pass the blame on him as if we are the ones who are innocent. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. God is definitely sovereign and allows tragedies to happen. But it is a direct result of sin in this world. God, in his great patience, does not correct Adam here, but turns his attention to the woman. Eve follows Adam's example, pleading her innocence, placing the blame on the serpent. Yet she doesn't, I'm surprised she doesn't say, the serpent in which you created. But 
still passing the blame, neither confess and admit to their sin. In the midst of answering for what they've done, neither confess their actions, neither confess their sins, but revert to their own rationalization and delusional innocence. Not much today has changed in man. Man arrogantly thinks of himself as inherently good and justifies what imperfections they do have by comparing to comparing themselves to those who are more openly wicked than they are, as if God graded on a curve. Verse 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here we have the first cursing or maledition in Scripture. And it goes to the serpent. The order is somewhat reversed. Judgment first is placed on the serpent. The serpent who is Satan, as confirmed in Revelation 12.9. The creature itself that is used as an instrument of evil is cursed. Now notice that, the inter- there, that there is no interrogation on the serpent as there is with the man and the woman. For it is known that lies and deceit come from the father of lies, John 8.44. And he who has, 1 John 3, describes as the one who has been sinning from the beginning the father of sin and lies. Though Satan is cursed, it came with a a great victory for him. For Adam, who was entrusted with this world, has handed over dominion right to Satan. Where sin and evil now reign freely in this earthly realm, it is why he he is called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, Prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2, the ruler of this world, John 12.31, But another curse is about to be laid on the serpent. Verse 15 is what scholars refer to as a proto-evangelium, the first gospel announcement. But I'm going to skip that for now. We're going to come back to that. Verse 16, I'm actually going to do verse 16 through 20 due to time. To the woman he said, I will surely... Multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and, you, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife, named Eve, because she was the mother of all living. God brings about his judgment to the man and to the woman. The joy of childbearing will now be accompanied, accompanied with pain and anguish. When Lily was pregnant, I, I told her that I didn't think it was right for her to take pain medication because she needed to feel the, 
the pains and uh, sin brought for me. She didn't think it was funny either. <laughs> it's not my fault. Blame Eve. I was just, I was just kidding. She got the epidural. Um, I love this. I love this. Part of your punishment, ladies, is that the man will be the head of the household. You think you had it bad now? Man's going to be the head of the household now. But in all seriousness, though, marriage is something now that will be hard work from here on out. Not only our relationship with the Almighty has been affected, but also our relationship with those that are to be our very companions. Where there was once perfect communion and unity, there is now a striving for dominance. And sin has not only affected our nature, our nature, but nature itself. Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Even natural disasters are a direct result of sin. Now God allows the earth to reflect the consequence of sin that it has had on everything. The earth that once so willingly bared its fruit and vegetation will now be gathered through much toil and strife. And God keeps true to his promise that was to be the result from man's disobedience. You will surely die and return to the dust from which you came. The ultimate reality of sin is death, which is now inevitable. After hearing that she will bear children, Adam names the woman Eve. I guess he was just calling her woman before this. Seems kind of somewhat derogatory, but I guess if she's the only woman, not too bad. Eve, which translates as life giver. A very honoring title, seeing as how the pronouncement of death had just been prior given to them because of their actions. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Here we get yet another glimpse of a characteristic of God that is prevalent through all Scripture. And one thing you will notice all throughout this text is God's judgment that has been tempered by His grace. The Lord responds to human rebellion with judgment and grace. Despite the pain of childbearing, God's blessing of procreation will continue. Though through much toil, food and provisions will still be given. Death comes, but not immediate, and despite the penalty of death, generations of human beings will still continue. And seeing that their attempts of covering their shame is not suffice, God provides for them proper covering for their shame. This covering does not come without a cost, for it was made from the skins of an innocent animal, an animal that is now a sacrifice. The first physical death has occurred but not to Adam nor Eve, but to another that had committed no sin nor crime, so that it may cover the shame of the ones that have. Here we get a foreshadowing 
of what was to take place on the cross. Verses 22 through 24, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Like, like one of us, again, man knows good and evil through experience. Where God knows through omnipotent, omnipotence. The serpent's lies were actually mixed with a, a bit of truth. And that's usually how Satan is so easily deceives. Mixing and twisting truth. But truth with just a little bit of a lie is still a lie. Now they didn't die immediately, as the serpent said. There was a spiritual death, and now death will occur. Um, they were like God in the sense of knowing the difference of good and evil by experience. Here again we see God's grace within his judgment. If man eats of the tree of life, he shall remain in a perpetual state of sin for eternity. Therefore God banishes man from paradise and ultimately, ultimately from his very presence. No longer does man have direct access to God as before. This is the real fulfillment of God's divine sentence. There is now a void between the creator and his creation. What began as a beautiful scene where man dwelt in a perfect paradise in the very presence of God ends with their expulsion and separation from the Almighty. It is a story of paradise lost, seemingly unable ever to be retained again, for a mighty cherubim guards the way back. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the story of paradise lost through the birth of sin. Merry Christmas. How funny would that be if I just ended it right there? But there is another birth that is announced in this chapter. Going back to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Praise God for verse 15. An announcement of the gospel. An announcement of hope. The power that Satan has gained through the deception of the woman will not last forever. Through her the curse has come forth, but through her as well the blessing and remedy will also be brought forth. God will bring about a seed, and he will come that will bring hope to an otherwise hopeless situation. God will put enmity between the two. Human history will consist of a struggle between good and evil, but there will come one that will crush a serpent's head and restore that which was lost. Fear not. For behold, 
I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen. Through this birth comes great hope of restoration. Satan's works will be destroyed. 1 John 3, 8, we read from earlier, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Our shame has been endured and taken by him, Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising or disregarding the shame. Romans 10, 11, everyone that believes in him will not be put to shame. Our sinful nature itself is put to death, and we are giving a new nature in creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Through Christ, there will be a new earth, Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth has passed away. The paradise and tree of life restored, Revelation uh, 2.7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. No more death and consequence of sin. Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And greatest of all, beloved, we will be reconciled unto God. 2 Corinthians 5.18, For this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry, ministry of reconciliation. 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. A couple of weeks ago during an elder meeting, uh, Phil jokingly asked if the title of my sermon was going to be the reason for the season. I, uh, I said, no, I'll be talking about sin. If anything, I jokingly said, I'll name it the reason for the reason of the season. So that is not a typo that is in your bulletins there. I hate, I hate doing titles because they always, every time I do a title, it's always somewhat corny and just, of all parts of writing a sermon, the titling is always like so daunting to me. So the reason for the reason of the season, so I named it. Because although Christ is the reason for the season, he came to seek out and save that which was lost. Luke 19.10. That which was lost to sin. Because of sin, Christ came. Now at the beginning of this, I uh, relate to you that it was my desire to bring you guys something kind of new, to kind of spice it up a little bit. <clears throat> and to my shame, I will admit that as I, I got the idea of preaching through um, Genesis 3 and talking about sin, I kind of I laid it out, the outline of the sermon, and, and I looked at it, and like I said, this, this hope in me to kind of get at it from another angle. 
make it new and fresh. I looked at it, and, and as I said, Lord, for, Lord, forgive me. I said, this is just the gospel. This is just the story of the gospel. It's just the story of us sinning and God reconciling us. Just the gospel. I became somewhat disappointed that this is all I came up with. And immediately shame came upon me and the Lord so graciously just opened my eyes. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is the Christmas story. It is the story of sinful man. It is the story of a good and gracious God reconciling us to the Father. It is the good news that while we were sinners without hope, Christ came to reconcile us to God. As I said before, Christmas has come somewhat monotonous to me over the past years. And I think likewise to many of us, the gospel has become somewhat monotonous to us. Because let's be honest, if I stood up here this morning and said, today I will be speaking on the gospel, how many of you would have busted out those pens and notepads and been ready to give uh, some outlines and some notes with great anticipation and excitement? But how can we ever grow numb to the story of the gospel, which is the power of God to save? God faithfully fulfills a promise of redemption made in the midst of man's unfaithfulness. God's ultimate pursuit through Christ of sinful man that runs from him. Where man attempts to free himself from the consequence of sin, God through Christ frees man from the bondage of sin itself. It is the story of our gracious God our precious Savior, of our redemption and salvation. If this is not enough for us to be in complete awe of this morning, then nothing will. With that said, my application is simple to you all. Rejoice. Be glad. For unto us is born our Savior. Glory to God in the highest. May your Christmas be Christ and gospel-centered, which is the beautiful story of Christmas. Christmas.